Hello, everyone. Seven Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the Seven Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other Seven Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 29th, and I have a special guest with me today. He goes by Mr. Night Advice. I found Mr. Night Advice on what was a platform called Twitter, now X. And as somebody who recommended Inovix for seven investing, I've been scrolling through the feed and it's kind of a cultish, meme-ish type stock or evolved into one anyway. And so there's lots of stuff, uh, lots of chatter about Inovix, both very uh, hyped up and also there's a lot of bears out there and it's kind of, uh, uh, to me, I experienced it as a binary world. You're either super hopped up on it or you're really bearish and, and it feels discordant to my mind. And then I came across a post by Mr. Not Advice that to me seemed unusual, if only because he laid out a really clear bull case for the stock and simultaneously a really clear bear case. And to me, that's rare in the sense that here's somebody that I thought could see both sides and was not, was trying very hard to avoid bias, you know, calling it as he saw it, so to speak. And so I, I reached out to him and got invited to look, look up, looked up his website, found his discord channel. And then I've been engaging with him for several months now and really appreciating his insights. So I thought we could have a shop session where we talk about Enovix, his perspective on the company. But before we do that, Mr. Nut Advice, would you be willing to introduce yourself? Maybe tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, let's start there. You bet. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I, I started my career over 30 years ago, and I've had the wonderful experience of being able to work at all tiers of Wall Street firms from penny stock to regional to what I would call blue blood firms. And throughout my career, I've also had the luxury and freedom to fulfill or fill a number of different roles from asset manager, founded and ran a, a quant fund, managed retail dollars and institutional dollars, and then got involved in investment banking. I've been involved in directly raising over three and a half billion dollars. And some of the companies are still public, uh, Taser Corporation. I actually was involved in the first capital raise for Frontier Airlines. I think they've done two now. And so, you know, I had the ability to sit down and meet with management and really, really watch and learn what makes a good company. Uh, a good company does not or a bad company does not translate into a corollary good or bad stock. And so I, I think it's important to 
what I learned was that there are certain things to look in man in, in you know when you look at management, but also there are you know from a from a company standpoint, you know running a business while uh, all businesses are different and all businesses are in different industries there are there are common factors that I watch for from a investor standpoint as I'm constantly adjusting my probability analysis of whether this company is going to succeed or not. And I think that often, you know, at least in my background early on, I listen to the story and no company comes to you to, that wants to raise money without a, without a good story. And uh, I have learned the hard way, you know, that stories are great, but there are things you can watch for that will give you a hint if they are, if the company management is executing and really going to deliver what they have promised and what they have proposed. I think there's been a paradigm shift in investing too since COVID. I think also with the, the explosion of information, there's so much information out there and it's so difficult to really parse through and decide that and know what is useful, what is not useful. And, you know, right now it, in, in the investment world, I think there's the pendulum has swung mightily away from fundamentals. And I think it, it swung more towards almost a personality investing business, a, a social media hype investing business. And I think at least on short-term timeframes, and I, and I've seen that with Enovix, some of the parties that got involved. I, I think that when you have a company like Enovix, or I know, uh, I think when you have a company like that, that has such a great story, great potential, I think it's really easy to ignore some real risks, some, some, or even missteps that they make. Yeah. So no doubt. Yeah. So no doubt, Mr. Not advice. We'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit, but let's, let's talk about, I heard you say two, two really important things straight up that there's the story element of investing. And then there's use the word probability. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what I see as a strength of yours is that you don't, you try to keep both in mind and you don't exclude one in favor of the other. Is that fair? Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, the story of the story of a company, I think people will translate that internally to support their, their bias. You know, if the story's good, they, you know, and all, again, as I said, all stories are good. No company is going to come out and say, you know, I think we're going to fail or, you know, and I look at the story as a roadmap. So when I hear a company say, we're going to do X, Y, Z, we're going to hit these benchmarks, these thresholds. I look at that as a roadmap and then I start scoring them on it. And I think too often people forget, you know, that they have real money invested in that company, in that stock. And you have to, I I think from my perspective as a, you know, a money manager, you've got to be allow zero I mean, this is not, these are not your friends. The stock market is not your friend. The management is not your friend. And you have to be absolutely brutal in how you evaluate what they're saying and what they're doing. 
and then understanding what risks are involved and either adding money in investment or keeping your investment in there. And a good company will, will continue to develop and will continue to execute in support of the story that they're telling investors. And when they don't, I think it's, it's really a natural, unfortunately bias for people to ignore that and, and give them almost make an excuse for the company too. And I think one very important demarcation is you don't invest in a company, you invest in a stock and they are not always directly tied together. There, there's, there are tons of companies out here that, you know, are great companies, but their stock is not doing well or vice versa. And I think it's important to realize that you're not, you know, this is not like supporting a sports team, you know, where you get behind and you're super excited and all that your money is at risk or our money's at risk. And I think it's important to realize there's the right time to invest in a company too, relative to what risk you want to take on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so hard to do, um, especially from the retail side, when all you're seeing is the story. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Thank you for pointing it, pointing that out. Let's talk about a little bit of what the story at Enovix is. The, the big, the big picture from my perspective is that the lithium battery has not been innovated upon for about 30 years now. And along come these uh, tech guys who essentially rejigger the battery's architecture and they swap out the graphite for silicon. And then they set the battery up so that all of these individual cells are stacked horizontally and then they are connected with what they call breakthrough mm -hmm. technology, which the tech actually doesn't really matter from an investing standpoint, but what matters is that this, this breakthrough technology makes the battery withstand higher temperatures mm -hmm. and it essentially makes the lithium battery safer. That's a huge, huge deal. It makes it safer and more compact. So more energy density, faster charge, faster charging rate. And you, you add that together with what I said earlier that it's a leap, massive leap over the old school lithium architecture. And all of a sudden with the dawn of AI, when we're going to need more and more and more battery juice out of all our devices, it seems like these guys are offering a product at exactly the right time to, to improve battery life across so many devices. Right. And we're talking about cell phones and wearables, and they even uh, have an interesting story about using their technology in electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. oh, that's a pretty compelling narrative, right? From the bird's eye view. Yes. Then along comes Mr. TJ Rogers, who is famous for bringing in phase from a dollar stock up to whatever it, it went up to 200 per share. Mm -hmm. And he, he sees big potential in the NVIX, but they the, their first iteration basically runs into manufacturing difficulties, share, share price collapses because there's these massive delays or rather promise of huge ramp revenues. They fail on their delivery goals. TJ Rogers comes on board, has this, has this live session where he's basically cleaning house, taking responsibility about all the, 
all the setbacks and then hires a brand new investing team. And on that investing team is the new CEO is Raj, what's his last name? Tellery. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. I refer to him as Raj. Yeah. Raj. And he's a guy that comes from, from a lot of experience building chips, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm, Micron. So he has industry insider expertise and connections. And I think what he's saying is that making batteries from a manufacturing standpoint is simpler than making chips. Therefore, his expertise will, will translate well because the challenge isn't exactly as doesn't, there's more leeway, I think, mm -hmm. in the way he, he explains it. So now uh, we're at this point where as far as the story for Enervix goes, it's all a question about how quickly can they scale and how effectively can they manufacture these batteries. And the stock market looks at this, has been looking at this story and saying, we believe it for the most part. It's not been the straight line and you could, you could fill in the, the shade there, but it's a two, I think it's at a $2 billion market cap at the moment. Whatever the number is, it's a sizable market cap, all pre-revenue. So point being, the market's buying the story. Does that sound, is there something that you want to add to that, Mr. Not Advice? No, I, I think you, I think you've explained the, you know, the, the resume of, of NFX, Novix, as well as what the potential of, for their products and products are looking forward. Yeah, that's right. The potential, if you kind of want to, you know, go really googly eyed and, and wild, it's kind of every product that uses battery could potentially be a customer. So we are talking about like potential customers, Qualcomm and Samsung and Apple. And I mean, you know, that's why when you see some of these price targets, I've seen one at a hundred dollars per share and, you know, they're pretty out there because the potential total addressable market is, is I think legitimately huge. Mm -hmm. But be, but, but that's fantasy, right? Or at least that's future fantasy. That's not yet reality. One additional point, I think along the story is that they are moving their generational two, generation two production line to Malaysia, mm -hmm. where I believe the reason for that is, uh, the manufacturing connections and network and cost of operations of doing business there is. That that's the best, I guess that's where the, they'll get the best margins. And so they've, they've lined up a, they've already found a manufacturing site and they're in the, in a deal with getting the financing to close with something called, I believe YBS mm -hmm. is the financing operator there, but that kind of takes us to the big picture, right? Gen two line, we're waiting on this generational two line to actually start making these batteries and then scaling. And if they do, then they'll get all these big customers. Then the revenues start coming in and the stock price shoots up. I think that's, that's the big picture. Yes. So Mr. Not Advice, what do you see as the bull case here that's legitimate? I think there are, you know, I'm not, I'm not a silicon engineer nor a battery engineer. But I think that their, their tech has been tested by third party. I, I think the potential for the company is, is just enormous. 
I, I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, everything requires energy to run and portability is key, no matter the device. I, I think that they took, you know, it reminds me of early microchip days and how, uh, you know, there was this belief that we can't possibly fit any more computing power. And then of course the mechanics advanced. So they were able to do that. And I think that, that, you know, Novix has the uh, opportunity to make a quantum leap in the industry itself, you know, from their, you know, their capacity alone, the capacity increase relative to not having a size, a physical size increase of the battery and actually a smaller battery size in some cases is tremendous opportunity. If you're looking at, you know, devices out there, you know, there's so much more taking up the inside of the real estate of your average cell phone relative to even five years ago that every bit of space that you can recapture, whether it's from an additional component, let's say, you know, once we move into more commercially available AI chips that are also in consumer phones, the power draws are going up because you have, you know, HD video, you have everything's the, the, the user experience has increased exponentially and that requires more power. So I think the bull storage for, you know, if, if we use a bull thesis, which is they have groundbreaking technology for battery storage device for devices, and it will be, or could be a market changer. I think that's in a nutshell what the, what the, the bull thesis is about it. And they've got uh, adding to that, they've got, they have put together a strong management team. Raj, you know, I had a discussion with a former, he was a former market maker at a fund and we were discussing Raj and, you know, did he have P and L responsibility at his previous position? Because yeah, bringing somebody in because they were senior vice president or director of a division looks good, but we want to know that they have responsibility to be profitable and that they're making cash flow and balance sheet decisions. And he did. So I, I think, I, I think he is, he's got the pedigree and I think that his experience from chip manufacturing, I think I do support that their battery manufacturing is much less complicated than chip manufacturing. I think his industry connections should allow him perhaps at the very least introductions to either supply chain sources or potential customers. And I think I, I, I also like the new ad of the CFO. He seems to be exactly what I'd look for in a CFO. He is very numbers. I mean, he's just, he doesn't make a lot of comments about the story itself. He, he is focused on the numbers. I, I like that. I, I, I want people to stay in their own lane. I think some of the decisions, you know, they have an advantage, a geographical advantage, you know, with just from a cost basis being in Malaysia. Uh, I, I think that could be exciting. Also access to what I, what I call blue chip customers, you know, and doing business in Asia and, and having that experience that Raj has doing business in Asia, I think is, you know, adds to the, the bullish case.
I think also their Department of Defense contract that they just executed. I, I, you know, I think that's, I look at that like a, a first of use trial, that that is a real world application. And, you know, the, the, the government, the U.S. government, um, you know, they, they waste money every day. But one thing that they're very good at is making sure the best tech is in the hands of the military. Um, and right. When the U.S. Army backs, yes. backs a certain battery, you know, there's, there's been some due diligence done there. Right. Yeah, in, in, that's right. So it's pretty, I think the bull case is pretty compelling and obvious, you know, like it really could, if with capitals, right, if this technology becomes adopted, the sky's the limit for, for the price of the stock. More interestingly, I think is as I've been reading your balanced views is the bear case. <laughs> and I've, I've seen you call out the management team for, I think you, you, uh, I don't know if it's tongue in cheek, but you know, you've said that they're doing one podcast too many, perhaps. Can you talk about that, that angle of evaluating this management team from the PR perspective? Yeah. I, you know. There, there is a balance between the amount of information that you want to release, but you also, I mean, you want to communicate with your, your shareholders. You want to communicate with the investment community, community and, and build some excitement around it. But I think that you can over-communicate also. And, and I, I think that my opinion is, is, you know, Raj has, and, and I put a lot of this at the feet of their investor relations company which I, I think two months ago, I, I said they're atrocious. I, I don't think that the audience that Raj needs to really connect with are, are retail investors that are going to his fire shot, fireside chats and podcasts. He needs to have institutional investors in. And, you know, I'm looking at recent numbers and institutional transactions. They've had a slight drop in institutional ownership. And the institutions that are involved now are not positioned with size. They need a couple institutions that will be, will come in and defend the stock. But again, this, and I won't go into it yet, but this is part of the bearish case too. And so I, th I think that the management is for whatever reason, you know, believes that they need to communicate the same story repeatedly. Over the last 90 days, they really haven't said anything new in their podcasts or fireside chats. It's the same thing. And so you're, so you're of the, you're of the mind, you know, like get back to work boys. Correct. Yeah. I, I, you know, I made a tongue in cheek. I said, well, my gosh, where do these guys find time to work because mm -hmm. they're doing all these podcasts. And I think, I think a couple of the podcasts that they did were done out of just the fact that. I think Raj is a nice guy, a good guy, but I, I, you know, I'm not hearing any new information coming out of Raj. I'm hearing the, the same things and, you know, it, it sort of raises up, you know, I sort of start paying attention. I am not saying this is what's going on, but in the past companies that have to talk about their story over and over again are doing that for a reason, because there is a lack of material news to present to the investment world. And so I, I'll be very excited and anticipating what comes in the next 90 days. But yeah, I, 
I'm not a fan of that. But the other side of that is if you're always talking and you're telling every detail and every step, you know, it's good to build anticipation. Mm-hmm. It's good for the investment team community to wait for your next update. I think there's too much communication going on right now. And, and I believe in clear communication. I believe management needs to be communicating material facts. But I also believe there's a wise way to do that. And they have, they don't have one scheduled this week, which will be the first one week they've missed. So right. maybe they're working. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess. And then that's the other thing. I have no doubt about the professionalism uh, of the management. Yeah. This is people, when they invest, they, they make it personal. You know, if you don't agree with them, then it's a personal attack. And that's what this, this investing environment has become. Mm-hmm. Nothing I say is personal. I, I have never met the man. I've never sat down and had dinner, shook his hand. And even then it wouldn't be personal. It's all about, he's the CEO and the captain of the team. And I want to see execution. So I think where I'm at with Raj and his fireside chats and all that is show me, not tell me, show me something. Yeah, right. That's such a key component to staying clear of the traps set out for retail investors. So thank you for underscoring that so clearly. Let's talk about the bear case explicitly now. What are the things that worry you that undermine, well, maybe not undermine the story, but what are you seeing that goes beyond too many podcasts and fireside chats? I think uh, current investors that are blind to any risks forget that they have a billion dollar shelf that they can, they, they will raise money from, you know, they they have said they don't need to do that now, and I would support that. But any offering, especially in this market environment, is going to be dilutive to current shareholders. And when I hear the comment, well, I don't care about that because, you know, the company will be able to overcome. Well, how? Show me the numbers. How? I, I think another part is they aren't releasing specific order numbers. Their medical device uh, buy that, that they're going to be in this, this monitor. I'd like to see some hard numbers. I'd like to understand what their margins are. If you're going to tell me great news, a great story, you know, we're, you know, we're going to be on the shelves of this new, this medical device monitor, tell me the numbers because only with the numbers can I, and therefore speaking as a representative, a quasi representative of the institutional side, the institutions need numbers. They're used to hearing great stories. They hear them every day. And so I think that's, that is a, a risk. My, my biggest, biggest issue or biggest concern is twofold, lack of execution and delays. I I don't think, I think that people, retail is looking at this, like all they're going to have to do is check a couple boxes and all of a sudden they're going to be this incredibly performing and operate production company. They're, they're not, there's going to be hiccups. And I think it's important to understand that because those hiccups are not going to last a day. They're going to last, you know, I've always used a quarter, you know, to work out and and, and I've invested in tech startups. I've, I've invested in microchip startups, okay, out of China. And so I I do understand this space, but I, I will tell you that from a bearish standpoint, I, I, it concerns me that I, I believe they overpaid for route jade by any metric, you have a company that's declining revenues 
you know, from 2000 and I believe it was the number I saw 2021, the revenue's gone down 2 million. Uh, even if, and when asked, the CFO said they are only marginally profitable. Well, marginally profitable to me is Wall Street speak for single digits. Because if if you were able to say as a CFO, oh, their their margins are double digits, right? It leads to a, a whole new, much broader range of you know, well, what could those double digits be? It could be ten percent, could be fifty percent, but. He said marginally, so I think they're single digits. So I was running some back of the napkin math and, you know, by any metric they overpaid. And then from the call, at least that I heard is that they did so because they very much needed the packaging. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Technology. Well, that was the first time I had heard that. And for a company that has been excellent at conveying, let's say, operational updates, that was to me, you know, and I, and I give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, but that was to me fairly important. We overpaid and they never would say that, but we needed that packaging tech. They comment about, you know, well, South Korea will open up doors to suppliers and no, Rauche being Korea is not going to open the door to suppliers. Raj's previous history in even more so the Malaysian location will open up supply chain. I think another issue would be that from a geographical footprint, they've got four different countries they're, they're in business in. And having run a company with geographically seven locations, and it was only in, I mean, it was in the largest state in America, in Texas, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge to get operational efficiency. And, you know, could he do it? He's got the background and experience uh, of running a multinational division, but this is a little bit different. And so, I mean, he's the, he's the decision maker here. He's, he's not getting, he doesn't have anybody above him that can talk to him and, and offer guidance. I mean, he's making all the decisions. So I think that is, you know, that those are the risks, but the big one is execution. You know, if they don't prove, it's the same story it's been for, you know, over a decade, right? Same story. They need to be able to scale. They, they, and it's a chicken and egg problem. You know, can they get a large customer, right? If they get a large customer, then they can prove they can scale, right? But they need to prove they can scale to get a large customer. And if they had a large customer right now, sure as heck they'd be announcing it, okay? I wanted to ask you about that, right? Because that is my assumption. I don't know if this is intuition or I'm assuming they do have a large customer lined up, but you're right. Where, why not announce it? 
Or is that a tactical thing? Well, I think if they have a large customer lined up, I don't think that large customer submitted an order of size. Because if listening to them, you know, they are in the design process now, the final design process with their customers, right? So customers have, you know, 50 different models of cell phones. And so they're looking at, they've got to physically design it to fit within the, you know, the actual physical component of the cell phone case itself with all the other electronics. So that's fantastic. I mean, that's good news to hear, but that still leaves the question of, can they scale? And in, in Raj, you know, has the confidence that they will, they will be able to scale. I take a probably more subdued look, uh, a view of it and say, well, there's going to be more issues than we all assume with that scaling. But I, I don't, you know, even if they've got, let's say a Samsung and, and I, I, I believe it's probably a Samsung or an LG, right? And if they have a Samsung as a customer, I think it's probably a conditional order. I think it's, we're going to start off with one phone or, you know, one or two phones, a small unit number and see how they do. And that for me would, that's great news because then it is based upon can the company execute because then the day we're investing in the company, being able to operate and execute and, and drive profit to the bottom line. But yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's so, uh, I think that's so one point, Mr. Not advice. I, as a, a long-term, as an investor, who's been investing for over 25 years, I can now name with clarity that my mistake, the one I've repeated one too many times, that's sort of shameful to admit is that I'm too early to when I get excited by the story, mm-hmm. right? I get, uh, I, there's a part of my mind that says, okay, well, the huge gains are made before everybody confirms that this is in fact the next best thing. Right. So there's, there's this, this eagerness, right. To get ahead of everybody else. But because there are so many risks involved with the story, not playing out the way we think it might, ought, should, would, could, or woulda, right. That often things take longer. Things generally just take longer <laughs> at right. the rule of the universe. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's, you could always buy after the majority of the risk is off the table, because if it is in fact true and they start scaling, then the way up is still years and years and years of stock price gains, right? And so if I'm right about your own approach, you have been both a long and a short with stock, correct? Correct. And so this is what's most interesting, I think, to me and to other retail investors listening to this conversation is that you don't have to have a binary biased view of a stock to, or a company to make money. So can you walk us through a little bit about your own thought process, how you managed for yourself to be both long and short at the same time? Sure. So I'll, I'll start with, I have a, I have a, a saying that I use, never marry a stock, only date it. And, you know, it, it's important to, when I look at a stock, there, there are two components of investing. There's the macro fundamental, which you're looking at the company and you're gauging whether their business plan, what the, what the percent probability of them executing their business plan over Y time is. 
And then there's the stock, which is the reaction to either real news or perceived news or perceived information or opinion about that company. And those, that second, that second part will always oversheet. People become too negative or they'll become too positive, depending on where a company is and the prices of the stock. And, you know, I had this conversation with somebody that if, if NFX, if I'm wrong right now, and they have a huge customer lined up and they're able to scale day one, okay, then how high is the stock going to go? So let's say the stock moves from 11, where it's at now, you know, 11.24, all the way up to $20, right? If this company is everything that people think it is, and they are truly going to transform the battery storage, the battery business, okay? Paying $20 for it when a significant amount of risk has now been taken off the table is in my mind, a wiser way to own this stock because if they are what they say they are, the stock's going to go beyond $100. There's going to be a buyout, okay? And it's going to be much higher. So if, it, it, you know, if, if you believe in their story, you believe in their technology, okay? And you believe they have the ability to execute, why not wait to have a little bit of color on the execution side, on the customer side, because again, you're not, whether I get in, a, if the stock goes to a hundred dollars, okay. And I, whether I get in at 1125 or I get in at 20 bucks, quite frankly, it's not like I'm going to get a medal or a certificate that says, oh, I was one of the first people to get into it. You know, there's this perception that, oh, I was in it early, uh, you know, and nine times out of 10, that never, that, that has not worked out well for people. And so, because they're taking on too much risk, um, I, I'm looking at this from a risk standpoint. Right now, risk is high for this company, and we just named the reasons why it's high. Potential is also high for this company, okay? But I, I want to see risk come down, and I'm willing to pay a higher price for that because if risk comes down, then the probability of a higher return goes up. So I'll pay the higher price, the entry fee, if my return probability is stronger. It, it, it is, you know, it's all about watching this company put, you know, develop their story, okay, and execute on their business plan. And so far, if we go back to September, right, which is, I think, when they lined up the, the YBS it hasn't, you know, they, they made a route aid acquisition. They, they still have the same challenges, the same benchmarks they need to overcome. It's always been about scaling. It's always been about scaling. Okay. The ability to scale. If you are a LG or you are a Lenovo or you are whoever it is, if they're getting the laptops, you want to know that if we give you this order, you can produce these at scale for us with no issues. Right. So. Everything that's being done right now is prep work. If, you, if you're not in the stock, buy a, a small position. This way it's on your radar. The, you know, the risk reward at this moment, I think, justifies having a keen eye on it. And then, as Mr. Not Advice was saying, wait till some of the risk comes down before allocating more. 
So what I want listeners to take away from this conversation is something that I harp on all the time. And sadly, I don't always do it for myself. It's, you know, do as I say, not do as I do. Is, in, is it's incredibly, incredibly hard to not be biased as a human being, just in general. And we are almost forced to be biased as, as soon as we take a position in the stock, because obviously, like Mr. Nodvice was saying, our money is on the line. So our mind skews that way. And to have the art and capacity and discipline to weigh the, the upside, but as well as the downside, obviously, but to have enough mental fortitude to be patient and to wait until the opportune moment and to not color your judgment, be able to hold both the bull case and the bear case simultaneously, as Mr. Nodded Vice was just modeling, is, I believe, the way most retail investors could graduate to a tier that's higher, higher than, which will end up proving, proving the, the method by higher returns. And it's really hard to do, and it's rare. That's why when we look at the Enovix, as I was saying earlier, X feed, you have this split into bears and bulls, and they're talking past one another. And so it's refreshing, refreshing, Mr. Not Advice, to hear you, I think, so uh, measuredly approach this the way that, that put the emphasis on making money as opposed to being right. It's always better to say, I don't have enough. I don't own enough than I own too much. And I think that, you know, if, if the average investor took one extra step, okay, and added to their dollar cost average that they're going to sell average on the way up, that, that I think is a balanced way to be involved in a company and in a stock on a long-term basis, but they don't. Oh. Right. And, and you know what, Mr. Not Advice, this is something I've been exposed to over the years as an investor. There's this, there's this split that I think is false between what I think of as long-term investors and short-term momentum traders mm -hmm. that does not need to exist. It does, it does, it's not a binary world where you could only buy and hold for long-term or you're some magical crystal ball waving short-term, you know, magic hocus pocus guy, there's something, you know, life ends up usually being somewhere in the middle where complexity lives. And in that gray area, there's elements from the long-term buy and hold that are correct, that, that provide good returns for X, Y, and Z principles. And also from the call it managing your position side, that does not have to do with short, short-term hocus pocus, but does also provides principles that help you manage your position more effectively. And I think what I see in your approach is this unbiased way of drawing from both without bias, without needing to say it's only one or the other. Does that sound fair? Yeah, it does. The CEO is not thinking about you. The CEO is thinking about what's best for his company. Okay. And the same thing with Anovix, the CEO, we want the CEO to be focused on what's best for the company from an operational and executional standpoint. At the same time, it's our responsibilities as investors, though, to not allow ourselves to be in an echo chamber and completely ignore risks 
and then the, the, the ratio of risk to return. And the same people, you know, Enovex has had some nice spikes, really nice spikes. Had one in the spring. It had one uh, early, uh, late summer, right? It, there were times when you could lighten up your, your exposure and, you know, get back in the market, get back in the stock as it came down. And if somebody, when I hear the statement, well, you know, I, I'm a long-term investor and I ask what that really means. Okay. Because people like to point to the Buffets of the world or the Peter Lynch's of the world. And yeah, they were all long-term investors, but they also took advantage of price spikes to take profits and price dips to add. And I do not know why retail thinks that if they sell a share of a company that they believe in, that it's somehow sacrilegious. I, I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, an easy, I mean, I think you do, of course you understand it. I think in layman's terms, it's, it's the human aspect. It's, you know, feeling that because you believe in the company and there are actual people involved to sell a share, you're somehow being disloyal. And that's the, the hard part in investing. It's a confusing space in the sense that sometimes we forget that the objective is to make money. Well, that's a great First, point. What are they being loyal to? You know, the company is not paying them for their loyalty, right? right exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, right. the company is not going to say, oh, well, you know, Mr. Not Advice was in this, so we're going to let him sit in the front of the annual meeting or whatever. You know, the company, people's loyalty is not to the company. It's not to the management. People's loyalty should be to the money that they work for, that they're putting into that company's stock. That's where their first loyalty to be, should be. I think that's a great, great place to end this conversation. And I, I have a, I have a intuition, Mr. Not Advice, that we'll have many more of these about different companies because there's, I just find really refreshing that balanced approach that you have. And I think so many people can learn from that, that it's not a mutually exclusive world. So to that end, would you mind helping listeners find you? Sure. I'm on Twitter at, at Mr. Not Advice. I also have a website, MrNotAdvice.com. I've got a tremendous amount of free material that you can read. A lot of commentary about Enovix, <laughs> newsletter and posts. I want to say I, I'm a fan of, of their tech. I hope they make it. And I really do. But I, you know, and I think your listeners will find that if they visit the site, they'll see that, you know, ultimately that. I, I am not this, this bear and want to see them fail. I don't, I, that's not my nature, but yeah, find me on the internet at my website. I also have a discord chat, which you can find through my Twitter profile. Again, we've got a great group of, I think almost 200 investors in there and many of them own Enovix. So. Right. I'm learning a lot from Mr. Not advice in this area of the market that was unbeknownst to me. And I think it's a great compliment to what we offer at seveninvesting.com, which is the deep fundamental research about companies. And then what you do with that is it's, you know, you can't be overly prepared. So Mr. Not Advice, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you.